Gentlemen, the prospect of the Premier League moving to Western Australia and Perth, is that a runner? Well, I don't know about you guys, but this circus can go anywhere in the world for me. I didn't get that. I didn't get that either. What did he say? Another edition of Lockdown Football, but great news. We have some unlocked football this week as we get underway in the K-League. Will Downing with you, along with my fellow Lockdown Football commentators, Mark Rodden, Stefan Gioni and Dimitra Zulai. Have you been doing anything different this week, Stefan? First of all, you're dressed as a pair for some reason on Zoom. I don't know. There's something uh, going on with the uh, pair. And maybe it's a sign, you know, from uh, the gods of bakery. From doing baguettes or making bread, uh, this week I spent time doing uh, pâtisserie, apple tarts, lemon tarts, and strawberry roulades. That explains the pear. Exactly, Mitro. Exactly. What's your week been like, Dimitra? Well, I started playing badminton more or less regularly with my wife. And that's pretty tough, I can tell you. You know, I haven't played it for so many years that I can hardly hold the record now, but it's funny. Mark, what have you been doing this week that's been so different? Well, Ireland's now uh, lifted or eased some of the restrictions so we can go five kilometres outside our home. I've been uh, going to the fantastic St. Anne's Park on the north side, Hidden Jam, um, going for long walks, but sad to see the uh, playing pitches not being used still, but uh, hopefully that will change pretty soon. We'll be joined by Paul Williams shortly of the Asian Game to talk about the kickoff of the K-League, which was watched by millions and millions worldwide a Friday morning GMT, but... Some sad news coming from Argentina, Dimitra. Yeah, in Argentina, in Rosario, Trincia Karlovic passed away. He was 74. He was attacked because someone wanted to steal his bike. One of the most enigmatic footballers in the history of Argentinian football. There is no footage of him playing. He spent his career in second division. We all fall in love with this game because we love to play and... Later we hear people saying, ah, I want to win, I come onto the pitch to win trophies. He never wanted that. He just wanted to play football and he did all his life. So since we cannot see how he played, we have to trust people like Marcelo Bielsa, who watched him regularly in Rosario. People like Diego Maradona, who in February told him, Trinche, you were better than me. And that's Maradona. So that tells you something about the legendary status that uh, Trinche Karlovic had in Argentina and especially in his uh, home city of Rosario. Well, Major League Football is on the way back in Europe. The thumbs up being given by Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor and the German government for the Bundesliga to resume on the 16th of May. They're hoping to complete the season by the 30th of June. But the German Cup at the moment is still suspended, which they hope is an oversight. But Mark... It's very, very good news and quite a while coming. But they have been dealing with the crisis as well. Yeah, the country has been dealing with the crisis as well. And uh, the German league acted very quickly to come up with a plan to try and get football back up and running. It's been accepted. They've uh, done, I think, 1,700 tests for coronavirus. Initially, there were 10 positive cases, two in a second wave. Christian Seifert, the head of the league, said they are on probation. Everyone has to act responsibly. And every match day that they have is 
the chance to prove that they deserve another one. So everyone around Europe and the world will be uh, seeing how they get on. Yeah, and uh, also uh, there's um, some conflicting information coming from the, the, uh, the German clubs. And uh, it appears that it's full of the training session. And are they really keeping the uh, social distance between players? It's not the case, apparently. And I really hope there won't be any more any consequences. And they're looking at come back on the uh, 16th of May with the uh, second division start at 1 o'clock uh, times, and then followed by five simultaneous games from the Bundesliga. So hopefully things will go well. Dimitro, you're obviously delighted to see big-time football returning to Europe. Well, absolutely. And we'll have more leagues uh, being back. Uh, we'll have Polish League, Portuguese League, Faroe Islands as well. We'll kick off even before uh, Bundesliga. And we had K-League being back uh, with the first game of the season. So, yeah, it is getting back, but it's also obvious that every country has to make a decision on how to do it and when to do it. Just on the Bundesliga again, Will, it's it's coming back despite uh, unfortunate incidents from uh, the league's point of view, I guess, with Berger Verstrada saying his head wasn't on football. He was forced to apologise by Cologne after that. Solomon Kalu did a Facebook Live in the Earth dressing room, shaking hands, not seemingly taking it very seriously. He's been suspended. And Nevin Subotic has come out and said, you know, the players have been a bit shy in training in that first full contact training session that it's a very unusual position for them to be in precarious as well you know 300 people in the stadium for match days and a whole host of new rules to to deal with the five substitutes being allowed probably going to come in and uh, coaches will be allowed to uh, give instructions if they take off their mask which is a a whole new world in uh, football terms. And we saw in Korea this morning when Junbuk played Suwon that the players weren't supposed to be shouting at each other. The substitutes all had masks on. The stadium was completely empty. No handshakes, high fives were allowed, although there were a few of those. There was a bit of fist bumping as well, but more about that later on. In terms of Belgium, very small country covers an area the size of Munster, remember. Population of 12 million, but they've suffered... Eight and a half thousand deaths at this stage. And off the back of that, they still have a major crisis to deal with. It means that the Belgian Prime Minister, Sophie Wilmes, has announced that it's not going to be until the 31st of July. Any kind of sport can take place in Belgium. And that means when the Belgian Pro League has their big committee meeting on the 15th of May, instead of deciding what they perhaps would have done to continue the league, probably the now they're going to draw a veil on it all. Yeah, seems certain and seems to me that they've pushed back this meeting a few times waiting for the government perhaps to tell them that they can't play so that that covers the issue with uh, TV companies who have invested a lot of money in, in the game. You know, there's, I think there's 300 million on the line in the Bundesliga, for example. That's one reason that they want to get the season finished. Bit of a, a sad way to finish in Belgium because the top six playoffs are so exciting. And clubs already starting to make plans for next season with Antwerp letting Kevin Morales leave. That's a a big one, although he didn't really excel too much. And it's a big reason, again, why the Bundesliga are uh, looking to finish the season as well by the end of June, because contracts are up then. And that's been a real problem for uh, a lot of of countries um, when they're looking at 
trying to get leagues back up and running. Uh, it's highly likely that the Belgium will stop uh, and then they will follow the recommendation of the uh, Pro League was made earlier in March. And uh, sadly, uh, I can't see the Belgium League coming back. It's going to be very late. And also, Mark mentioned the contract and uh, some players will be leaving as Miralas and Bolat from Antwerp already up by the 30th of June. So, yeah, I mean, the only good news, you know, from Belgium this week, it's really like uh, Standard Liège and Moucron getting their license for next season. Yes, because Standard Liège had been refused their license originally, but now they've got it back. And whether it's this season or more than likely next season, they're going to be allowed play. Moucron have had, you know, a few funding issues for a number of years, but it would have been really strange, Stefan, not to see Standard Liège in the top flight in Belgium. Yeah, it's an iconic club. And uh, to me, that's the biggest club in, um, historically in, in Belgium. Impossible to see them play in the third division, really. When you're the stadium, and as, as we said before, like some old players like Fellaini and Witzel invest into the club to, to save it. And it's good news for, for Stana to stay up. But the big question mark about Anderlecht, badly run for the last few years, huge squad, and also 80, 90 million in debt. I mean, if Standard was relegated, what about, you know, Anderlecht? Obviously, it's not the case for Standard, but Anderlecht is love issues internally and, and financially as well to resolve very quickly. Even Frankie Vokotor will be the next coach, still be in, the, in, in charge of uh, Anderlecht. We will have players leaving the club and uh, I expect very little on the market happening basically from Anderlecht. And the other story, I suppose, around that is that Orlando Saas today said goodbye to Standard Liège. He was very critical of the Belgian tackling of the COVID-19 crisis in the Portuguese Obola newspaper. But Standard said that he had not been authorised to give that interview and his contract has now been terminated. But great news. Just what you want on a Friday morning. Live football from Korea. So 1-0 victory for champions Jungbook Motors over cup holders Suwon Blue Wings to get the K-League in South Korea underway. Lee Dong-guk, the substitute with the only goal late on from a near post header. Uh, Paul Williams from the Asian game was among the many millions watching live this evening, Asian time. We were hoping it would be a a high-scoring blockbuster. It wasn't that in the end, but Paul, was it a a good advertisement for the Korean game? It was a a decent enough advertisement. I think it was... It was a relatively scrappy game. It wasn't the, the best game of, of K-League that you're uh, you're going to see. I think probably as the weeks go by, you'll see the, the players start to get into a rhythm. They, they looked heavy-legged, looked like they hadn't played a game of football in, in three or four months. I think the, the long off-season, um, we'll, we'll see that the early-season games are a little bit scrappy, but uh, that'll pick up as the season goes on. But really, the storyline is, as you said, Lee Dong-Guk score, uh, scoring uh, 41 years of age, a, a Korean football legend his 225th goal um uh in in his k-league career that started back in in 1998 he's he's gone across centuries as well um and he continues to score and continues to deliver for john book and in terms of the overall quality of the league how it's positions in asia quite strong uh, absolutely it, it is one of the the premier leagues in asia i think most observers would agree that the j league is probably the the premier competition in asia but uh, as far as i would see it the k league would sit just behind uh, the j league it is 
it's it's a very different kind of league to the J League. They often get characterized as, as being very similar, but uh, they are very different once you get to watch them and understand the nuances of the league. The, the J League is, is very technical that the players there are very technically gifted, um, and they are so in Korea as well, but it's a, it's a lot more powerful um, uh, it's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more strength involved in the game. Uh, players are, are, are back and forth for for 90 minutes. That the wingers love to to bomb on and and whip the ball in for uh, for big central uh, big central strikers. So uh, for me, it, it is one of the strongest leagues in Asia. It has the most winners of the AFC Champions League. Um, regularly streams and streams of plays into the the Korean national team. The Korean national team has qualified for the most World Cups of any other Asian nation as well. So um, it. It is it is one of the strongest leagues in Asia, without a doubt. Yeah, and Junbuk at the moment are the only club who have an overseas coach, Jose Moraes, who was Jose Mourinho's assistant at different clubs, such as Inter, Real Madrid and Chelsea. Does that help them or hinder them in any way? I know they're champions and I know they won their opening game, but does he have a lot of knowledge of the Korean game? He will have probably after his first 12 months in charge. That was the big question mark coming into, uh, coming into last season. They were the... Um, expected to be runaway champions last season, and they only pipped it on on the the final day. Ulsan led coming into the final day. They were playing their uh, their, their closest rivals, Pohang Steelers. Only needed a point, and it looked like a, a foregone conclusion. And they somehow conspired to lose that game. And, and John Book pipped them on on the the final day. I don't think it was their most um, impressive performance last season. I think even uh, Idong Guk himself said that um, they needed to play more like uh, the John book evolved a, a bit more attacking football so um but that 12 months under his belt he'll he'll have a better understanding of of korean football um now certainly and it was a hard act to follow he replaced Choi kung he who was a legend of korean football who'd led john book to to most of their seven championships he'd been in charge for the better part of the last decade apart from one small stint in charge um that he had with the korean national team um, it's a bit like replacing Sir Alex Ferguson. You're on a hiding to nothing there. Um, so it, it, to win the title in his first season, um, that's mission accomplished, and he'll be he'll feel a little bit more comfortable within himself now um, that he understands the Korean game. And they are certainly uh, for me them along with Ulsan Hyundai, uh, the two favourites for the title this season. And just looking through the squad list, I see six of the sides in the top flight have got Brazilian players. I think four have got players from Australia. Adam Taggart played tonight for Suwon. Uh, Terry Andonis is also in their squad. They obviously have a limit on the number of overseas players who come in. But is it uh, somewhere that you see could be a base even a couple of European players may end up in? Uh, absolutely. I, there's there's been a number of European players come in um, uh, in the past and done exceptionally well. And you mentioned the Australians as well. Terry Antonis got a straight red card tonight, so not a good start to the season for him. But we've seen Australians go there and, and do really well. Adam Taggart is a striker who came from Brisbane in Australia, went and won the Golden Boot uh, in the K-League last season. And that's probably something we haven't seen a lot of Australian players do in the past, go to a foreign league and, and dominate such as that. Korean teams have tended to love Australian defenders, the, the big-bodied Australian defenders. Um, uh, the best of those was Sasha Ognanovsky, who went to Seongnam uh, and helped them win the Asian Champions League and was crowned himself Asian Player of uh, of the Year. So it, it's a good breeding ground for, for, for players in Asia as well. Um, but certainly there's there's been some, some European players that have... Uh, that have come across in um, uh, 
in, in previous seasons and and done and done very well. There's a couple on uh, a couple on the books as you would have seen uh, of a couple of teams. I think Bjorn Anderson it might have been is at uh, Ulsan. I think it is off the top of my head uh, a Norwegian uh, Norwegian that's come in. So um, it'd be good to see more Europeans come in. That the the teams tend to love their Brazilian players, but um, uh, certainly I think it's a, a kind of leg that would suit uh, a European style of play. Yeah, I see there are quite a few Balkan players there and there's a deal with Balkan YTV in order to show the league this season. But, I mean, Korea's dealt quite well, despite being an epicenter very early on for the uh, coronavirus, that they have dealt with it sufficiently well that they can now play in empty stadiums. And there were a couple of uh, extra things that were thrown in tonight. Uh, players couldn't shake hands. They weren't even allowed to shout at each other for quite a bit. They've been told in advance, please don't shout because that could spread uh, some of the germs as well. Yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, a lot of stories and rules that were floating around beforehand. I don't know that the players strictly adhered to that. I think there's probably a, a little bit of reflex action. I saw a few players giving each other high fives and low fives, and it's probably a bit of a reflex action because it's it's what they're used to doing out onto the pitch. But certainly they were told, you know, no excessive spitting, which you can understand. Um, uh, no close communication. Um, I guess obviously, you know. With with all the sweat and uh, and everything they've got going on, if they're if they're literally talking in each other's faces, there's the risk of you know of spit particles getting onto to one another. So you can understand that as well. All the coaching staff were ordered to wear masks on the sidelines, so you can understand the caution. I mean, as you said, Korea's dealt with it particularly well after a sudden surge uh, initially at the start uh, of the year. Um, uh, you know, the the way they've been able to trace those that have had it um, and really flatten that curve where uh, where other countries have failed to do so has allowed them to to get to this point. All the players were tested earlier in the week. Um, uh, every player from every side, uh, the results came back within six hours. Every single one of those was negative and they'll get tested um, each and every week um, to ensure that that, uh, that that remains the case. So um, they've done an exceptional job and I think the measures they've put in place um, stand them in good stead. And if it gets to such a point, I think the way they've handled it uh, and, and being able to control it so well in their country. Um, it may only be another perhaps four or five weeks before we see them start to allow fans back into the stadium as well, and that would make the experience uh, that much more better. Yeah, and we're into week five in Taiwan. Tatung are the champions. They've won it the last three years in a row, but they've had a bit of a wobbly start. Taipar are on top. They've won their first four games. And again, they've managed to shield themselves from COVID-19 quite well. I think the... Per 100,000, the amount of cases have been quite low. The death rate's been very low. So they've been pretty much been able to go according to schedule. Yeah, and and Asia is almost the, the centre for the footballing universe at the moment because there are so few leagues going on that the league is going on in Taiwan as per normal. The K-League started tonight. Uh, the, the league in Turkmenistan is continuing. Tajikistan has just had to stop because uh, the coronavirus is starting to spread significantly there, but they were continuing on as well. Um, but as you said, it, it, it's almost situation normal um, in Taiwan. And, and I think they're realising the opportunity that, that exists as there's such a paucity of, of football on at the moment that people are desperate to watch. And, you know, they've been providing streams on, uh, on YouTube as well with English commentary that people can, can join in and watch. I don't think as many as uh, uh, were watching the, the K league tonight, I don't think they're in any, in any large number like that as well, but it is a great chance for, uh, for, I guess, these smaller nations to perhaps 
get an audience that they wouldn't otherwise uh, wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, you know, Taiwan football is uh, is right down the list in terms of uh, uh, the the top quality uh, top quality Asian leagues. But uh, but as one of the only leagues continuing on in the world, um, there is perhaps an audience for uh, for people that are desperate to watch some football. Yeah, I just wanted to ask because last season, Ulsan and Cheongbuk were runaway leaders. Do you see anyone? realistically challenging this season because last season Seoul FC I think they were close to them for 21 rounds or something like that and Pohan they started winning games like from round 27 and this year they only have 27 so probably Pohan will not be able to do that so is there any other club realistically in in the title race except those two for me it's a, a race into this season between those two teams, John Book are just perennial contenders. You, you can guarantee they'll be always there or thereabouts in the title race. They are strong. They just went and signed uh, Kimbo Kyung, who was the MVP of the league last year, who played for Ulsan. They signed him this season, so that automatically strengthens themselves. He is a, a fantastic player. He used to play at Cardiff City, previously played at Jumbuk Hyundai as well. And initially, you might have thought, you know. Ulsan Hyundai losing the MVP of the league. Uh, they lost an American mixed disc route as well, who was hugely influential for them. And you thought, oh, that could perhaps uh, hurt them. But they had um, a fantastic offseason in in recruitment. Cho Hyun-woo, uh, Korean national team goalkeeper, who some may remember for his funky hair at the World Cup in Russia. He's he's come in, uh, one of the best goalkeepers uh, in Korea. Uh, Kim Ki-hee, a Korean international, who spent the last couple of seasons with Seattle in the MLS as well. Um, and Lee Chung-yung, who spent a lot of time with uh, in in the UK with Crystal Palace as well? Um, so they've strengthened enormously. Um, for me, it's a it's a race in two between uh, between John Book and Ulsan. If there is another contender that perhaps could throw a spanner in the works, maybe FC Seoul, maybe Pohang Steelers. Um, I expect them to be there or thereabouts in terms of fighting for AFC Champions League spots. Um, but when it comes for fighting for the title, I think it's it's a race in two. Um, and I actually have Ulsan uh, as my title favourite uh, coming into this season. I think just the way, even though they lost uh, Kimbo Kyung uh, from last season um, uh, to, to John Book, I, I think the way they've strengthened the, the players that they've signed, uh, they're an incredibly strong side. They should have won it last year, uh, and I'm predicting them to go one step further this there is this curious thing about K-League this season. It just started and we already know one team that will go down. Could you just explain a bit more the situation with the Army Club, Sanju Soma? Yeah, so as those are probably familiar with, especially, you know, because it's been in the headlines recently with Son Hung Min, who literally just completed his, uh, his mandatory three weeks military service, he got the exemption for winning the Asian Games, but still had to complete a three-week period. Uh, he finished that today and he's on his way back to, to London already, I think, to to join up with Tottenham. So, you know, for, while professional players have to uh, complete their mandatory two years of, of military service, there is a military football club um, that plays in the, the professional uh, K-League um, that these clubs all feed into. So there's often a huge turnover of players every second year as as, as a new um, a new batch of players come in, and 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 those that were there go back to uh, go back to their former clubs. Uh, the agreement that was in place between the uh, Korean military and, and the K-League has lapsed. Um, uh, so what is going to happen is that club will will automatically get relegated. That they're, they're based out of Sung. 
Juice City at the moment. I think uh, they're going to be relocated to a- another city come next season as well. And that means that um, regardless of how they fare this season, there is already the deal in place that they will get relegated uh, down to K2 for next season. So depending on where they finish on the table, it will depend on how the relegation looks, whether there is just an automatic relegation um, or if they finish dead last, um, then you will have a, a promotion playoff between second last in, in K1 um, and the top team uh, or the second uh, second team in, in K2. So um, it is a little bit weird and, and I guess that places a bit of a cloud over how they can perform going out each week knowing that actually their results really don't matter because they're going to get relegated at the end of the season anyway. Um, as nice as it would be for them to finish high on the table and they could... You could have the remarkable situation, or not that I think they'll win the title, but you could have a remarkable situation that a team wins the title and gets relegated in the same season. That would just sum up 2020 perfectly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, the Korean Republic under-23 side won the Asian Championship this year. It's hard to believe, but there was some football in 2020. Uh, yes. So what place would you recommend having an eye on during the season because today we had Chogu Son playing for Chonbuk up front because I understand that Lars Feldweg wasn't fit so they put him up front and he came from the second division where he did well and did well also in Thailand but is there any other players who could be interesting to watch from that side? Yeah the MVP of that tournament Wondu Jay was uh, he had a fantastic tournament he'd be a player to keep an eye on but the one player that uh, that I really like um, scored against uh, Australia in uh, in the semi-finals when they they ran rampant against uh, against uh, against Maioli Roos Uh, they only won 2-0 in the end but uh, probably should have won uh, by much more that's Lee Dong-Gyong plays for Ulsan Hyundai who as I said are are one of the title contenders for this season Uh, he was fantastic throughout that entire tournament um, uh, could have easily won the MVP uh, himself. Um, he was instrumental in in Korea going all the way in that tournament. So he'd be a player that I'd be um, I'd be keeping an eye on as well. If you're going to be watching Ulsan, as I said, are a title contender. So um, uh, they're a team I think a lot of people will be watching. And, and Lee Dong Jun as well um, scored a number of crucial goals throughout the tournament. Um, so there's uh, a couple of names to uh, to keep an eye on. Lee plays for uh, for Busan Ipark, who were uh, just promoted this season. Um, uh, a former a former giant, I guess you could say, of uh, of the Korean um, scene back in the uh, the 90s and the early 2000s, and have fallen on hard times now, but uh, have won promotion back to uh, to K1 this season. So uh, yeah, they're a team to keep an eye on as well. By the way, is there any news on the J League in Japan as to when we might get to see it back again? Because we had a couple of weeks play there, and then they just had to stop. Yeah, they got one round out of the way before they had to uh, suspend their season. Uh, I think they announced uh, about a, a week or a fortnight ago that uh, they've had to uh, extend uh, extend that suspension of the league uh, through until another month. So I think that'll take us through until the end of May when they evaluate the situation again. They haven't probably contained it as well as they have in South Korea. They've had a couple of players and staff members uh, test positive at a couple of clubs. So that's probably pushed it back uh, a little bit. I would imagine that uh, you're probably not going to see any action, unfortunately, in the J-League, which is one of my favourite leagues uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, unfortunately, I can't see us uh, uh, getting any action until the second half of this season, perhaps maybe July or August they might uh, restart this season. But um, uh, I don't think they'll be, uh, unfortunately, I don't think they'll be starting up anytime soon, unlike their neighbours in South Korea. Okay, Paul, thanks very much for that in Brisbane and uh, get a good night's sleep if you've been managing that the last few weeks because I know there's a a, a newborn in the house. 
there there is a very young uh, child in the house so I'll, I'll try and get some sleep tonight as best i can thanks for having me well thanks again to paul williams of the asiangame.com they do a weekly podcast as well you can simply search for it the asian game and um, what did you make of the overall standard of football this morning Dimitri? well it was obvious that it's just the first game of the season they've been waiting so long to play that one but it was also important to remember that Suvon, yeah, they're cup winners, but they're not going to be title contenders. And they played away to the champions. So they kept it tight. They tried to get a draw. They were close to getting that draw. And Chonbuk, well, they played in a slow pace. Yeah, they tried to build up patiently, but the opposition half was so crowded, so they hardly had any openings and they mostly had the shots from outside the area. So I don't think it's the game you can watch and say, okay, this is Korean League football. You'd have to see a lot more and just watch other teams, especially Ulsan. And so many experts say they're going to be the team to watch in this uh, season. So overall, I can tell you that probably... Uh, there was more rhythm and pace in the 1963 European Cup semi-final between Benfica and Feyenoord that I watched a couple of days ago than in this particular game. But you just have to understand the circumstances and the context. And very briefly, can you tell me about that game, Dimitri? Because I know you'll have retained a lot about it now that you've mentioned it. Brilliant game. Benfica was fantastic. Uh, I know it was all Bella Gutmann's fault. Because when he cursed them, he couldn't win anything. But that team was was absolutely terrific. It was a year after their second consecutive European Cup. And they just, playing at home especially, they could attack and attack and attack relentlessly. Even though they were 1-0, 2-0 and 3-0 up. And at the moment, we've no idea if we get to see K-League action in the same way outside of that opening game as it was for the moment. A one-match deal distributed for free on YouTube and Twitter and broadcast in Britain and Ireland by the BBC Friday morning. The MyStar Adelden, the Faroe Islands League, kicks off this weekend with extra focus on it as the three main games of the week are going out live in Norway for the first time. Champions Klax Vikar saw goalkeeper Geset Turi retire pre-season. He's 46 and from Hungary and played at Old Trafford against Manchester United in the Champions League. We'll give you the full edition in our next edition on Tuesday, but here's a quick piece about coming on a sub at Old Trafford for the red-carded Sasha Illich and having to face Ruud van Nistelrooy from the spot. It was a great, great feeling, actually. <laughs> I was not accept to, to... I was not thinking about to go on the field in that night, So, but I was lucky, I should say, because I could, I could do it. I was on the field. Right, so so here you are. You're in Old Trafford. It's your it's your first moment on the pitch, and you're facing up against Ruud van Nistelrooy. Did you come close? Actually, I find the the way uh, close. Yeah, it was a hard shot. It's that interview in full in the next edition. Uh, Stefan in the Netherlands has been quite a bit of concern in the past few days about the national team boss Ronald Koeman. He was, yeah. Last Sunday, he was admitted in hospital in Amsterdam. Apparently, he went to, uh, he undergoed a cardiac catheterization and uh, stayed in hospital for the last few days. He's, he's out and uh, he's well and healthy. It was really a shock in the Netherlands. As we know, Coman had a fantastic career as a player, especially in Barcelona. Iconic player in the Netherlands and also the uh, head coach of the national team. And uh, his, his job was huge. He took uh, the team in 2018 
the team had been qualified for the World Cup in France and the European Championship previously. And um, so it was a huge job, a huge task ahead of him. And uh, he did quite well for the last uh, few years. And uh, seemingly the Netherlands are back on track footballistically. And that happened on Sunday. But again, good news. He's, he's back home and uh, he's grateful. And he's feeling uh, healthy uh, as a fish again, as he said. And there's been a couple of updates regards Ajax as well. Uh, Van der Sar saying that three reasonably big names can leave. Yeah, as usually Ajax, uh, that's you know the model chosen by the club to uh, sell the, his be- well, the best players every season, and then and and picked you know the the young players from the academy, and uh, that's how it works in Ajax and most, for most of the Dutch clubs. And uh, they're going well. They're looking at to leverage on uh, street transfer potentially if. The right offers on the table, and not surprised to see uh, Andre Onana. He's been the radar for a while with different clubs in Europe, like Napoli, Chelsea. Are quite interesting. While Chelsea are not very happy with Kepa, the Spanish keeper, and PSG as well. And uh, we're talking about Nico Tagliafico, the Argentinian player, the left back, who had a very good season, especially in the last campaign in Europe. Donny Van der Beek. A very promising player decided to stay and next extra season he could have moved to uh, Real Madrid but also PAG was uh, quite keen to uh, sign him so we still don't know exactly where they're going but uh, surely if um, right offers will be on the table there's no doubt at least one or two of those players will be gone within the next few months so sad to see uh, uh, those players going but that's part of the life cycle in Ajax for uh, a young player. Well, there is no football going to be taking place in the Netherlands for the rest of the season, but there has been an idea mooted by the FAI's interim deputy, chief executive officer, Niall Quinn, the former international, that the Viva Stadium, Lansdowne Road, could be used as a sole neutral venue for the remainder of the League of Ireland season. Now, that's currently suspended, a calendar year league, as many of you will know. Is that a runner? Could you have five games a weekend there? Well, that's the main question. Could you? Could the pitch be playable after the first round or even after two rounds? Yeah, we're a long way away, I guess, is, is the other thing. There's so many matches to be played in the season. Only five rounds um, completed, or not even fully completed, the, the five match days. But no football possible till July 20th, at least, in Ireland. So I guess from uh, the likes of Niall Quinn's point of view, he's, he's, he's worried about players' livelihoods. Um, we've talked about the financial impact of, of not getting seasons done, but it's um, a lot bigger in a, in a small league like the League of Ireland. And uh, also looking into you know live streaming of games, is that a way of bringing income in for, for the clubs that have uh, obviously been very badly hit by this? I'm just glad to see that they are making a genuine effort to try and come up with some sort of solution. Good news uh, for... Well, for League of Ireland, we know those clubs need to come back and uh, for financial reasons, for any clubs anyway in Europe. But uh, it's important for the players. Some players are not earning the same level of money uh, that you may have you know, in France, in England or anywhere else in Europe. And uh, it's, it's, it's vital for any players to be back on the pitch and, uh, and it means to get paid as well. Potentially, they would need to do two full rotations, maybe being a 10-team league just have an 18-game season, that that would be it. But the other question also as well as what would therefore happen to the First Division? Would the First Division games be played there also? 
be impossible probably they would have to come up with something different another solution for the first division yeah Waterford FC by the way the third club in the League of Ireland to lay off all their staff and their players during the week so pop quiz hotshots though not exactly new news as it was on have I got news for you last week and I forgot to put it in the program in 90 minutes play which country is the most successful penalty takers it might surprise you Germany? No, that wouldn't be a surprise, would it? Uh, they are very efficient in the penalty England. Shootouts. England. Wow. Stefan wins a pair. You are correct. Um, and it was a German survey, again, of major top leagues and so on, that apparently English players in 90 minutes have the best penalty conversion rate. That drops dramatically, obviously, when it comes to penalty shootouts. Now, next question. Which league... In Europe this season has been the best in fielding youngsters, players under 22. Netherlands, the Eredivisie. You're close, they're second. Belgium. Belgium. It's not Belgium. Championship. No, it's a top flight, apparently. Uh, France. France, actually, of the so-called five big leagues, are the best in fielding players under 22. 15% of playing time was among young players this season gone. The Bundesliga is 10. The Premier League in England, 8.5. Serie A was 7.5. And, and La Liga was 7. But the Bundesliga was second behind... Slovenia. <laughs> Slovakia. 47% of playing time this season has gone to under-22s. And Anderlecht actually were among the best clubs because we've mentioned them a number of times. They were 24th in the world among the 1,292 clubs in the 93 top flights analysed. And the club that was top, Wellington Phoenix of New Zealand, 93% of playing time going to under-22s. But that brings us on to a talented young player that we're going to look at every week. And Stefan, this week, who are we going to have a look at? We'll definitely look at an Irish player, Jason Knight from Dublin. He started his career in the cabin Tilly. I moved to Derby County and started really well playing for the under-18 in 2017. Also played for the 23 and got his first goal with Philippe Coco in 2019 season. I know he was part of the under-21 squad with uh, Stephen Kenny. He's a very young, promising player and it's uh, definitely a breath of fresh air to see him on the pitch. He did his debut in August 2019 against uh, West Bromwich Albion at home. They drew one all and uh, Philippe Coco was very impressed by his attitude. The story behind the scene, he never mentioned to his parents who, you know, were on vacation at the time. He tried to keep it for himself for his first game. What's interesting about him, he's quite versatile. He can play wide on the striker, can play also on the wing. When Rooney came to the club and starting in January, he was pushed on the wing. But his attributes are absolutely, you know, exceptional for such a young player. He's only 19. He got 19. He was 19 in February. He's very enthusiastic, technically very good. He loves having a go with defenders. Excellent dribbler as well. His potential is enormous. And I want to remind you, he's only 19. And if you if you look at, you know, closer his stats, started 15 times for Derby County, 22 appearances this season, and scored four goals. And I was covering one of the game around the end of the year. Derby County was playing Charlton Athletic. He scored two goals in that game. If you look at Derby County at the time, they, they played with uh, 10 players on the pitch. After Bilic, the Polish player, was sent off after 70 minutes. And uh, Jason Knight scored after 10 minutes. And uh, after, you know, 70, uh, 70 minutes, scored the second goal. And 
but he was absolutely unbelievable. He's, I have to say, Philippe Koku is quite impressed about his progress after six, seven, eight months at the club with a professional team. He was explaining as well during the training sessions, he had to calm him down because he was running a bit everywhere on the pitch and he had to understand a bit more about the tactical requirements to play for Derby County. Philippe Koku is a new manager coming to the club, but straight away, he was really uh, attracted by, you know, the ability of Knight to fit into uh, to his squad. And I think that kid, you know, has a very bright future ahead of him and definitely will see more from Jason Knight in the future, especially for Ireland. I won't be surprised if we'll be including the full international squad. Having Phil Koku as a mentor, it's, it's good because Phil Koku has been um, a coach who has produced so many young players, especially as PSG and Dovan. So he knows how to mould uh, those players and to reach... Uh, top level football. In terms of the championship of this season, I mean, Derby are still well in contention. They're 12th. They're five points off the playoffs, five points off Preston. Obviously, they have a plan as well to come back in the championship sometime next month. There are still nine weeks of the season to go and obviously potentially the playoffs as well. He's really impressed and I believe only got given something like 60 minutes notice at the start of the season by Philip Koku that he was going to play for Derby on that day. That's correct. Uh, well, he was subs, you know, four times and came in, showed that how good he was. And uh, when he got that chance uh, to play his first tag against West Brom, which won the, uh, the best team in the league, a breath of fresh air. And he, again, what was impressive is physically ability to run for 90 minutes nonstop, very energetic, but also technically very good. And uh, it's good vision and he could run and run and run as a lot of potential and can definitely look at I'd be a primary prospect in a uh, in few years' time. But as as Philip Koku said previously, his attitude has been superb. He's not afraid to put extra shift at the training session at the end. So he's willing to uh, to listen and to work. And and I say Rooney uh, came in after Christmas and you could have said, look, he's going to be uh, starting on the bench. But Koku decided to put on the wing and tactically he's learning every day with uh, Koku. And, um, and I think in the long term run, Ireland would benefit from it. Yeah, what's interesting as well, Stefan, is that it's not just Koku who's been praising him. Wayne Rooney, when he came in, highlighted Knight as an incredibly good trainer. And he said, he reminds me of myself when I was a young player. No fear, energy, attitude, gives 100% all the time. Um, there was a an article in uh, the local press at the end of March that kind of said, you know, Wayne Rooney was absolutely right in what he said about this kid. He's proved it. He's got a new contract until 2023. There's uh, talk as well of Premier League interest already. And just a couple of weeks before the shutdown, he scored a really, really good goal in a 3-1 win at uh, Sheffield Wednesday as well. Tight angle across the keeper in off the post. So he just seems to be uh, grabbing every chance he gets. Yeah, plenty of ability. And if you, I was covering that game, Derby County against Charlton, and when Rooney was in the stand uh, at Pride Park watching the game, and when Knight scored two goals, and Charlton was on top of Derby County for after you know Billick was sent off, and they were struggling, but Knight, what was amazing that he was running for I'm not saying ten people, but at least for two players constantly with the right attitude and and the willingness to go forward and with that kind of attacking mind. He's quite clever in front of the goal, and it's it's again it's really, really good news for Ireland to see some young players coming through because it's very rare uh, to see some Irish kids being a regular in the Championship or even in the Premier League. And Derby County is a big club in England, but I can't see Knight staying if he continues in the right direction. 
to Sadabi County, he will be moving to the Premier League. Could you see him going to a top division elsewhere? Because obviously there's quite a bit of good young talent not able to break into major Premier League sides in England, have had a look at the Bundesliga and have just gone straight in. And the Bundesliga in many ways is a higher quality league. I agree, but unfortunately Money Talks will, if his agency, a club in England could offer, you know, two or three times what he's earning at Derby County, in the Premier League, sorry. Uh, after that, it's up to the uh, the player and the agent to decide what's best for the by for night, particularly. But if Bayern Munich comes around the corner and you have, let's say, West Ham or uh, Arsenal, well, that will definitely go to Bayern Munich and uh, you could definitely improve a lot in the Bundesliga. But again, historically, you have a tie between Ireland and England. And so I'm afraid, you know, we'll see him for a while in, uh, in the Premier League. If he continues to progress, he's only 19. But there's no reason he can't make that step with uh, that, that attitude. I know his brother, you know, play also in England for Leicester City for a while, for two seasons. So he's getting, you know, some advice in the family and his brother plays for, still plays for Cabinetini now. I think if he's well surrounded and, and properly guided, he could be a super player in the, few, in the next few years. Yeah, I, ju- I just want to give uh, Stephen, credit, yeah, Stephen Kenny some credit on that as well because he brought Jason Knight to the Toulon tournament last summer when he hadn't played for Derby County. So he obviously so- saw the potential. Ireland performed very well in that tournament, got to the semis and uh, Jason Knight has just gone from strength to strength ever since. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jim Crawford would definitely lose him with the under twenty one. He will move with the uh, with Stephen Kenny. I can't see uh, Jason Knight staying with the under twenty one. Well, yeah, I've, we've commentated on a few games of Derby County this season, both in the Championship and the FA Cup. Uh, Stefan mentioned the Charlton game. He played on the left, and then against Northampton in the cup, he played on the right. That's his ability, and he's a right-footed player. But he can play on both wings and also, yes, as Stefan mentioned, he can be in the middle as well. And also, it is important to note that he's been a regular for the under-17s when they played the European Championship in England two years ago. Then last year, he went to Armenia with the under-19s. So there is that gradual progress for the national team. When you see a player moving from under-17 to the next level and I agree with Stefan the first team as the next step does not seem so unrealistic now judging by what we have already seen from him and if he is such a good trainer if he's got that character well it's all up to him and uh, he can really be a very important player for the national team in the next few years another Interesting line which has come out in the past few days is a football agent has apparently spoken to Premier League Chiefs and offered them to play the remainder of their season in Perth in Western Australia. Is that a potential goer, do you think? Well, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this circus can go anywhere in the world. I wouldn't bother. Actually, I think we have in Premier League some clubs that don't even need fans in the stands anymore because they wouldn't suffer financially from it. Not all of them, of course, but there are some. So anywhere, even in hell, they could play. They'll, they'll be welcome there as well. Yeah, well, I mean, on my side, uh, I think it's absolutely a crazy and ludicrous idea. From an operationalist perspective, it means you have to, um, to Australia and the South Hemisphere, miles and miles away from, and from England. So many teams, so many players, staff, 
and how they're going to organize that it's uh, i don't even know like they're going to do that. i know we're talking about purse and uh but the idea was coming from i think gary neville who works on sky but also an agent it's called gary williams it's astonishing and uh, how they can do that and uh, and so for safety issues players will be on the same plane going to australia unbelievable incredible unbelievable and also let's say if, if you do that for tv People who wants to watch the games, it will be quite early in the morning. You know, straight with the time difference. And, but it's also the safety of the players. I, I still don't understand they're going to do that. And are they going to articulate uh, that move? Yeah, Gary Neville, I think, suggested the Premier League could be finished abroad. I'm not sure he had that far away in mind. Let's just not, lads. You know, ridiculous. Don't even entertain the idea, please. You know, a while ago, they were entertaining that 39th game idea, which was another ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous idea. But they were entertaining it for a while. And luckily, well, it didn't happen. But you just never know. It's funny. I, I was actually at the press conference where it was announced. It was London on a Friday lunchtime. And I was on the way to Paris to work on the Six Nations. France were playing Ireland that weekend. And I think there was a Joe Calzaghe press conference which was taking place in London that morning. So all the planes would have been full and quite expensive. So I decided to do what I used to do a lot during my radio career and go the long way. I remember getting a text from a colleague of mine saying, look, you should go to such and such a hotel. Uh, There's going to be a press conference in an hour and they're going to announce something big regards to the Premier League. So I thought, well, I mean, I've got the afternoon off. So okay, I'll toddle along, signed in, so on. And... There it was, it was announced, the 39th game for the Premier League, which that was, I think it was early 2008, so we've had 12 years, it obviously never happened. Spain have had ideas of playing regular season games abroad, only really the Super Cups have happened abroad. It doesn't look like something that's ever liable to happen soon. NFL and NBA have done it, NFL have cancelled their games for London, the four games for later on in the year. To be honest, it doesn't look like anything which will ever be a runner, I just cannot ever see it happening. And, you know, looking at uh, Gary Williams, eight-point proposal <laughs> to the Premier League, he's talking about fly all 20, squ- all 20 squads to Paris. And at the end of the, um, the campaign, allow families to travel over toward the end of the campaign to give them a much-needed break in a safe environment. It is ridiculous. I mean, this is a ridiculous idea. It's, to me, it's not feasible. And, uh, and we're not even allowed to travel uh, to uh, foreign countries if you're not uh, non-European or... I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. We've been told, you know, to stay close to your house and now you want to fly to uh, Australia uh, to play the remaining of the season. Yeah. So TG Carr have been continuing their series of World Cup gold. They skipped Ireland nil, Egypt nil, and in a way, between various channels, the timelines have been skipping forward and back like Westworld because Air last week had Ireland's qualifying campaign for Italia 90 and the Italia 90 finals we remember quite vividly because low scoring and so on but it's worth pointing out Ireland's under Jack Charlton for the first seven years after that opening loss his very first game at home to Wales 1-0 Ireland didn't lose at home for another seven years when they were beaten by Spain in 1993 so they were unbeaten at home during that qualifying campaign the 3-0 win over Northern Ireland probably was the ultimate highlight they only lost one Game on the way, that was away to Spain. It was their second away game, having drawn away to Northern Ireland. But that 3-0 win at Lansdowne Road, remember all those games used to be played on Wednesday lunchtimes, Whelan, Cascarino, Houghton with the goals in a 
a 15-minute spell either side of half-time. Mark, they really were a special team when it came to Lansdowne Road, and there were occasions when they were perfectly allowed to open things up. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you forget that, but that's one of the reasons people always talk about it now, especially when, you know, team not the biggest teams come to visit Dublin and we uh, sort of gift them possession and back off. Irish fans were brought up on, you know, putting teams under pressure. If you go further back, playing very good football, but even under Jack, you know, we did. We played really great football. We were a horrible team to play against. And at that time had a fantastic squad of players as well who you would uh, happily pay money to watch. And at times, like in that uh, qualifying campaign, they really did open up as well. Midway through that campaign, there was the 1-0 win over Spain and shadows of what had happened against France eight years earlier when Michael Robinson had set up the opening goal, which was an own goal, which Frank Stapleton almost got on the end of. And similarly, Ireland beating Spain 1-0, April 89, own goal by Michel. And again, Stapleton almost got on the end of it, eight years on. But Ireland got that famous 1-0 victory on the way and had only lost 2-0 away to them in Seville. But once we'd got to Sardinia and Sicily, the opening matches finishing one all between England and Ireland, which T.G. Cahar showed last week, and the Netherlands and Egypt, which was quite a surprise. Uh, Netherlands going in front through Wim Kieft early in the second half. It took them a while to get through, but Egypt equalising through Abdel Ghani from the spot. So then there was a thought that Egypt might be a tough nut to crack. And England and the Netherlands drew nil all in their second group game. Ireland against Egypt, Sunday afternoon in Palermo. And that finished nil-nil as well. And something which is remembered, though many Ireland fans try and forget. A game which it was thought they might win 3-0 or 4-0 in advance. Obviously, very few people had knowledge of Egyptian football back then. There were only two players who were playing outside of Egypt. Not too uncommon in those days. Obviously, Egypt these days are a much bigger prospect. But it was a frustrating afternoon's watch. Yeah, you could say that again. I don't think anyone ever wants to see that again. I think Mick McCarthy might have mentioned it in his book that Egypt had actually had a couple of months to prepare as a team together. So uh, they were really well drilled going into it. And I guess the disappointment, we remember Eamon Dunphy, the big uh, TV pundit, former player in Ireland, for him was the fact this was shown on Sunday afternoon. So everyone was watching it and it was just a real damp squib in the end and a big opportunity for Ireland to, to get one foot in the last 16. At that stage, they didn't. And that meant that the Dutch game, who were uh, European champions at the time, was absolutely massive and a huge test as well. It's worth pointing out also that pretty much everything that was supposed to be on that afternoon, it would have been a time for summer parades and summer festivals, like they were all put off that particular day. Apart from GAA matches, the Leinster Hurling final, I think it was, or certainly the Leinster Hurling Championship match played the same day and there was only 5,000 at it at Croke Park, which was a bit of a scheduling mistake, which I think the GAA never really did again. But there was such an adverse reaction to anybody criticising any Ireland performance at the time that Eamon Dunphy really got it on the neck because he'd said on TV the team should have been ashamed of the performance considering the talent that was around and he was a little bit ashamed in watching it. But obviously that, back in the days, pre-internet, pre-anything, pre-able to watch anything back, had got transposed into him being ashamed to be Irish. And he obviously arrived 
later on in the week in Sicily to do some press conferences and got thrown out by Jack Charlton at the Ireland press conference. And the controversy really escalated then, heading into this final group game against the Netherlands. Yeah, but I think, uh, Will, it's a good point you were making about uh, Dunphy, but uh, he's always been very critical of Jackie Charlton's style of football and the way it was played uh, under the Charlton era. But uh, you have to remember... Egypt, specifically that game when everyone expected um, expected Ireland to beat comfortably the uh, the Egyptians, and uh, they were the 1986 uh, African Cup champions. And some of the players, four years later on, were still like uh, in that the squad who won that uh, big trophy in Africa. And I'm not saying you know Ireland maybe you know tried to undermine Egypt, thinking oh yeah that's a small team, but it's a big team. It's a big nation, big football nation, Egypt, and uh, they have massive clubs as well. Again, it's a big nation. If you qualify for the World Cup at the time, there's not many teams as you used to have now in the World Cup. And it means that Egypt was a very, very competitive team. Maybe, you know, didn't qualify for the next round, uh, the, the World Cup in Italy, but they could give the game to anyone, basically, on the day. And that's what proved the point, even though the style of produced Ireland was not the standard for Dunphy or for anyone who lost football, but it was efficient. And a style proof before and, and during the World Cup could qualify Ireland and, and, and go further into that competition. But Egypt was not a bad team. They were a decent side with players who, who have won uh, major trophies with the national team. Yeah, it's a very interesting point that Stefan is making here because if we remember, there were only two teams from Africa at the 1990 World Cup, Egypt and Cameroon. So you can imagine the qualification process and how tough it was. And in their group, Egypt considered just two goals, and they had Liberia, Malawi, and Kenya as rivals, okay? They won the group. They considered those two goals. And if they had the two-legs playoff against Algeria, their great regional rival, and it was a nil-nil away and one-nil at home. So it was a team difficult to score against. So if we're talking about Ireland being a side difficult to break, so Egypt was similar to Ireland. And uh, when Will says that people were expecting Ireland to beat them three or four nil, just like they just didn't know much about football and about Egyptian national team, which is natural for 1990. Unfortunately, now in 2020, we can hear some stuff like that. Also, we have to remember that it was a unique situation when three teams were in the same group in the previous major tournament, Ireland, England and Netherlands, got together again. And Netherlands were the reigning European champions and England wanted to do much better than they did at Euro 88. And they knew each other, even though Netherlands had a different manager. So there were a lot of ingredients for that group to become what it actually was during the 1990 World Cup. So nil-nil in that game, Ireland Egypt probably shouldn't be such a surprise. But even now, I think people will still look at the result and say, how could that be? But Egypt only lost to England 1-0 in their last game. If you look at Egypt, you know, losing only one game, but also Cameroon stunned absolutely everyone. If you remember the first game of the competition against Argentina, they, they bet the world champion 1-0 with someone being scoring in the, in the game. No one really knew about uh, Cameroon if you're coming from, let's say, you know, England, because historically you don't have really ties with Africa, but you, you can't undermine those call them exotic teams because you don't know them and you assume because you play in Europe you're going to beat them you know, quite easily. And that's maybe why 
as a nation, we, you know, we got it wrong in, that in 1990 in terms of undermining completely Egypt on the game. And it's going to be a walkover. I think Dunphy's point was that if Ireland had come out with a more expansive game and just attacked Egypt, then they might have actually won. But then there was only one team that beat Egypt in Italy. That was England. That final group game, Mark Wright with a header from a free kick. It took a set piece for England to break Egypt down. That happened at the same time as Ireland against the Netherlands. And obviously a great Dutch squad going into it. Very memorable, Hullet. Van Basten, Rijkaard, Koeman, Van Broeklen, very much the side that had won Euro 88 so magnificently two years earlier. Uh, the Netherlands going in front against Ireland in Palermo through Rudhulitz after 11 minutes. John Aldridge, something that would slip from the memory, he'd actually found the net a minute later uh, from a header, but it was disallowed presumably for offside. It didn't look it, didn't look a foul either. It's something that hasn't really stirred up much controversy over the years. Vim Kieft came very, very close late on, but within a minute, Pat Bonner had sent a long one forward, a defensive error, a couple of defensive errors actually from Van Tieglin and Van Broeklin with a misplaced back pass, if you like. Nal Quinn latching onto the rebound, equalising one all, and then pretty much for the final 20 minutes, absolutely nothing happened because they both knew that result would be good enough for them both to qualify. Lots ended up being drawn. Of course, if Egypt had managed to equalise against England, then everybody would have had an identical record in the group and you'd have had probably three teams going through drawing lots and then one team just from the luck of the draw. You know, the chances, three out of four, it would have been a big name who would have missed out. But interesting watching that game back 30 years on last night. Yeah, right before kickoff, actually, it was uh, fascinating to hear uh, Paul McGrath being blasted out by a sizable crowd in Palermo. Just gives you an idea of how many Irish fans were there. The context, obviously, uh, Dimitro mentioned the teams had met before recently, so the Dutch weren't going to uh, underestimate Ireland. But also, that Dutch team, you know, the three standouts, Van Basten, Hullet and Rijkaard, in each of the past two years, they they were top in the uh, top three voting in uh, the European Football of the Year Award, the Ballon d'Or, awarded by France Football. And uh, with AC Milan, they'd won back-to-back European titles not only that but those three players had scored all five goals in the two finals against Barcelona and then Benfica so it was a huge ask for Ireland brilliant first goal in the game from the Dutch by uh, Ruud Hullet but after that I thought we were really good we played with no fear and yeah there were plenty of long balls but we played some good football they were under pressure I thought you know a draw was probably a fair result in that game based on the flow of it those guys were on top of the games in 1990 in, uh, when World Football. During that game, Ireland, yes, there's no absolutely no fears. And usually when Ireland comes like underdogs, they're all very, very dangerous team. You, you're losing, you know, you consider goal after 10 minutes, you have to get back into it, you know, into the game and knowing you have to at least, you know, maybe uh, get, a, get a draw to get the next round. And they done exceptionally well in, in the game. Watching it myself, I think it, it was a very competitive uh, team and the display was pretty good against the Netherlands. You have to keep that in mind. It was, it was the best team in Europe and one of the top four teams in, uh, in the world. Can we mention the French ref who kept telling the, kept telling, kept telling the players to tuck in their jerseys? Apparently that was a FIFA directive at the time, which um, you know we complain about things now in football. That must have been absolutely infuriating to uh, deal with and to watch. Yeah, probably one of the best refs as well in the World Cup, Michel Vaudreau. But he had a big problem ultimately in that semi-final. He was tipped for the final. I think he was considered by quite a few 
at that time to be the best referee in the world and then played, I think it was seven or eight minutes overtime in the first period of extra time in the semi-final between Argentina and Italy, which pretty much wrecked his chances of getting the final and perhaps it was a different dynamic of a of a World Cup final between West Germany and Argentina because of that. Two red cards, a penalty deciding it. I think it was an Ecuadorian referee that we ultimately had and that who had also taken charge. He was a Mexican referee, but he was a naturalized Mexican. He was actually from Uruguay, which has infuriated Argentinians because you have an Uruguayan, you know, with another passport, but Uruguayan referee in Argentina in the World Cup final. And I think that also Argentinians who not happy about Michel Votreau because he booked Claudio Canigia and that means that he missed the final as well. The other thing which was very noticeable about Michel Votreau in that game and there are other matches from the 86 World Cup and the 1990 World Cup where it actually stands out. I think 82 as well. The whistle was very loud but it was also very, very shrill. It, it's not how you would expect a whistle to sound these days. It was almost as if a whistle you'd pick up in a toy shop or something like that. It sounded... Sounded really weird. Do you know what's interesting as well? Apparently, he did intervene when that equaliser was scored. There was a lengthy stoppage for Niall Quinn to get some treatment. And clearly, that's when the message went on. Listen, lads, England are 1-0 up against Egypt. One all draws enough for he- enough for us here. And apparently, the ref had a word with Mick McCarthy and Rudullet and said, like, here, you have to play football. And looking back, it's not really mentioned, but that was a really risky thing to do to to play out the match because if Egypt scored, then it would be lots and you could be out of the tournament. You could be unlucky. And Egypt had a big chance laid on against England. It could well have been one all in that game. Um, But Ireland and the Dutch decided we're happy with what we've got. I think that says a lot about Ireland because once we got the goal, Cascarino had come on, was playing brilliantly. He'd been dropped and was really disappointed. We looked really good. The Dutch, it seemed to me, were the first to kind of really get the message that yeah one all's okay Ronald Koeman did a very good job of looking like he was uh, searching desperately for a forward pass and then passing it sideways to Rijkaard but the funny thing there as well was um, the Irish had a problem with Marco van Basten who was still tearing away up front didn't get the message and Mick McCarthy met Ronald Koeman on holidays in Portugal a couple of weeks later and Koeman told him, what was the story with Cascarino and Quinn? Did they not get the message they were making our life hell at 1-0? Well, that's the point, because Quinn was down injured. He hadn't got the message either. It was mentioned in a couple of the books which had come out subsequently. Jack Charlton had done a World Cup diary. Mick McCarthy had done his autobiography, Captain Fantastic. I think they'd both said in it that actually Niall Quinn didn't know, because how would he know? He was down injured. He was being treated. He'd other things to worry about at the time. Um A couple of the other notable things which stood out for me, quite late on, a graphic came up, I think around the time of Quinn's goal, it was the offside count, 7-4. We'd had 11 offsides at that stage, and I will constantly comment, in a lot of games these days, you don't actually tend to see an offside, or maybe you'll get a really late offside and you might comment in commentary, you know what, I think that's the first offside of the game. It's astonishing how, you know, at the time, and we were very much used to it, offsides you know, there were there were ten a penny. They happened all the time. Like there were a dozen offsides at least in that game with with twenty minutes to go. I, you have to remember that there was a moment when you were offside, even if you were level with an opponent. And I think it was exactly in nineteen ninety when they made that change. So also, it probably shows how 
both teams were doing, especially Ireland, when you send the ball forward quickly, and sometimes, you know, you can't coordinate the movements and you have your striker caught in the offside as well. But no, nowadays, you can also get some games with a lot of offsides, especially now those new offsides with VR that have been scrutinized uh, in, in so many leagues. But yeah, probably back down in the World Cup game and in a game that involved European champions, probably would have expected something else. But also we have to remember that there were a lot of stories about some internal problems in a Dutch squad during that tournament. So it didn't help them much because they weren't the side that was so fantastically beautiful in the European Championship just two years before that. Yeah, Thies Liebricks had been the coach to guide the Netherlands through qualification the first time they made it to a World Cup in 12 years. But there'd been a major players revolt. They didn't get on with him. Leo Benhaker was brought in for the second time just two weeks before their opening game. But one notable thing again from last night is like even the Dutch played a lot of long ball. Hans van Broeklin with some long punts up the pitch during the game. The other thing was, obviously, they knew that they were going to go into lots at that stage. It was either going to be West Germany waiting at the San Siro or Romania in Genoa. And it was interesting in the commentary just how often it was said, well, it's going to be it's going to be West Germany next Sunday in Milan. And obviously the Dutch ended up getting them. Ireland ended up getting Romania, which was a different point entirely. In terms of the timelines being mixed up between so many channels over the past few weeks because they're going through all their classic football, England against West Germany being shown highlights BBC this weekend, but they'd also shown the game in full about three, four weeks ago. And it's interesting how England developed as that tournament went on because at half time, I think Terry Venables and Jimmy Hill were in studio, both delighted about how well England were playing, how well they were passing the ball, and that they hadn't seen any England team do anything like that in years. Their beliefs seem to grow, but the quality of play, the more important the game, the better the opposition, if you like, seemed to improve a lot as well. Well, another game that was on recently was England against Cameroon in the quarterfinals. And Cameroon were missing four players through suspension for that game, but still probably really should have won it. You know, even when Barry Davis is, uh, you know, saying it's a deserved equaliser for Cameroon and constantly referring to uh, Cameroon's good play, it tells you how good they were. In some ways, England were fortunate to get that shot against West Germany in the semi-final. Yeah, that game's actually being shown in full on the BBC Red Button this weekend, and ITV have highlights of it in their Saturday night slot next week. In many ways, it was sort of a turning point for England. You could also say the same about the Belgian game the week before, when David Platt scored in the last minute of injury time, flicking it past Michel Prudhomme, who went on to greater things abroad, and then managerially like Bobby Robson is is remembered so positively because of that I know we were talking about it last week yet up to that point up to perhaps those two first knockout games it was such a different story because I guess the English public were expecting so much more of of England than what they were producing well that's a typical situation they always expect so much more and they always get what they deserve Uh, so in this particular World Cup yeah the Cameroon game was a highlight it was one of the best games of the tournament, maybe the best game of the tournament. And England did well against Belgium to get that late goal. But against Cameroon, it was a proper football winner with both teams trying to win it in the end. And Cameroon had a great chance when Amon Big just tried to backheel it into the net when it was 2-1 to Cameroon. And Peter Shilton saved it. And later, those penalties... Because when you say, okay, four players were suspended... 
we all remember how they played against Argentina in the first game. So we understand where those suspensions come from. And there were two penalties for England. And you can't really dispute those penalties. Those were stonewall penalties in both cases. So they lacked something there in defense. But overall, it was a fantastic game. And Cameroon was one of the brightest sides of that tournament. See, it's interesting you say that because I remember at the time it was thought that at least one of those penalties was quite soft. But you look at them by 2020 standards and you'd say, yeah, those two are definitely penalties. There's no doubt about it. Even uh, one where himself uh, said recently that it wasn't about the goalkeepers. Uh, it was just about the defender who was chasing him, who touched him in both cases. Yeah, and he said he'd got a big gash in the leg off the back of it. He'd been caught from behind. You have to the the other thing which actually stands out from the two games we've seen so far, and also the ninety minutes of or the hundred and twenty minutes of England West Germany a few weeks ago on the BBC. A lot of the camera angles used by Italian TV were really unusual. They go behind the goal for attacks. They'd use the eighteen-yard camera for corner kicks and stay on it. So, like, the only angle uh, that we ever saw in real time of West Germany's league goal against England, for example, in that 1990 World Cup, it was from behind. And it wouldn't happen today. It definitely wouldn't happen today. And perhaps it's one of the reasons why there are now separate companies who come in to cover the likes of World Cups and Olympic Games. Because Italian TV, well, they decided on a few experiments which were interesting, but mm, yeah, it looks weird. 1990, by the way, of course, before that was the year of Liverpool, the last year that Liverpool won the league title. And under Kenny Dalglish, three titles in five seasons. The 88 team, I suppose, was the best. And perhaps an example, Demetra, of the quality that was in the top flight in England at the time, because they were an immense side. Arsenal, also good back then, winning two titles in three seasons. We mentioned it briefly the other day. Or maybe not so briefly, but we did mention it. Uh, because of the... Hazel ban. There were clubs who couldn't participate in European competitions. We were talking about League Cup winners, unexpected League Cup winners like Oxford and other clubs, for example. But in the league, despite all those problems with hooligans, and yeah, there were some sides that probably weren't playing the most attractive football, but there were some very good teams as well. And there was some competition in the league. Because it's always interesting to note, even back in the 70s and then in the 80s, yeah, Liverpool were kings. They were winning titles regularly. But there was always someone challenging them. Like in the 70s, you had West Brom, really good side. You had Southampton, then you had Watford in the 80s. They were different sides, but they were trying to challenge Liverpool. And Everton, of course, then later became a big contender. So, in a way, it's a bit unfair to say, okay, everything was boring and you couldn't watch it. No, you could. But also you can understand those who are saying that because, yeah, of course, some games wins the best. But that brings it back to the Irish squad as well, Will, because uh, if you look at that 1990 Liverpool team, there was Steve Staunton, Ray Houghton, Ronnie Whelan, John Aldridge. You know, we had really, really good players at that time and that's why we were so good in uh, Euro 88 and Italia 90. Even though, the style, even though the style, you know, again, the team was completely different from Liverpool. And, uh, but having said that, the player or the Irish players were, were able to adjust the, the, um, the needs of the team and the national team. Credit to those guys to, uh, to adapt pretty quickly to Jackie Charlton's uh, 
tactical mastermind, if you want, in terms of what has been delivered for Ireland. But again, if you look at, you know, the Republic of Ireland, what struck me along the competition, it's like Jackie Charlton never changed really his squad. He stick with the same number, you know, the same 11. And more or less the change is, I'm not saying exactly the same along the competition. You can see Cascarino and, and coming in. And if it's not Ronnie Whelan, it could be like John Sheridan. But it will be more or the same players in being involved into uh, most of the games uh, being played in Italy. And, uh, and the same 11, he will stick with his players which believe that he, they can deliver what is required, you know, from his own perspective. Yeah, it's the reason why as well Alan McLaughlin coming into the squad for that 1990 World Cup was such a shock because it was presumed it would be Gary Waddock. The thing with Charlton at the very least was there were very, very few surprises. He had probably in his head the 25 best players and then he would always pick the 22, 23 he needed out of that. Right, uh, next week, obviously, Tichi Kara is showing Ireland against Romania. No spoiler alert, we know how that ends. Uh, I was just asking if they're going to show the penalty shootout of the whole game. Actually, that's a very good idea. Well, we know what they should show, but they'll probably show everything. That'll be next Friday night. And obviously, as mentioned, England Cameroon is ITV's big uh, special next Saturday night. This weekend, it's the 1979 FA Cup final. One late thing for you, Mark, by the way. League reconstruction in Scotland next season. That's been quashed. It's come through tonight. The Scottish Premiership clubs have voted that down. Any thoughts on that? Look, it's been very, very, very messy in Scotland. Rangers have uh, talked for seemingly weeks now about this dossier of evidence that they were gathering to uh, show up the uh, league authorities. That was released yesterday. By all accounts, not very many people were impressed. So it's been a problem in Scotland for a long time, not just Rangers, obviously, in this case, but a lot of teams are looking after their own interests and really for the league and the country to move forward as a whole they have to think collectively and i think there's major problems there structurally i don't think that the the smaller top flight works in scotland as well but money talks as always in football right we are done happy birthday to jack charlton by the way 85 today as usual don't forget to like us and rate and subscribe for future editions whenever the next one will come out in the next seven days. But until next time, thanks very much to Mark Rodden, Dimitri Zulai, Stefan Jorni, also Paul Williams from the Asian game. I'm Will Downing, and until next time, it is goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>